when we went through the front door, it was like we went into a totally different world. When we went back into our house, that was a whole nother cultural space, a whole nother language. Where do I fit? On which side of the door do I fit? And how much do I belong in either space? I feel so lucky to be at this place in my life and been part of the Scheherazade squad. It's such a gift at this point in my life. I needed to bring more of my full Arab self. And that's about affinity group. Find your affinity group and spend time there because that's very nourishing and very acknowledging. Hi, and welcome to In Conversation, an interview series exploring creativity, diaspora, and transformation. I am Reshma Razvi, a producer and media maker inspired by the character of Shahrazad in 1001 Nights and her storytelling resistance. So I started the Shahrazad Squad. Join me as I talk to some of these Sherazads with a small s, the women and non-binary creatives, cultural producers, and change agents, each engaged in transformational work. After all, stories plus sisterhood save the kingdom. In this episode, I talked to Selma Abinader, an organizational consultant who's dedicated her career to working with nonprofits and public institutions. Hers is also a journey of self-discovery, from her upbringing in a small coal mining town to embracing her Lebanese heritage, along the way finding power and the significance of ancestral wisdom and community. Selma shares some strategies here that have helped her cultivate belonging. I'm Selma Abinader, and I live in Richmond, California, which is Alani territory. And you and I met through the Shehrazad squad um, probably just a couple of years back. What was two years ago? What was one year ago? It just seems weird. Yeah, I mean, it feels like there's, it's almost been a decade, I think. Right. I remember 10 years ago. <laughs> I thought we'd just go way back and you could tell me a little bit about where you were born and raised and a little bit about like the world of your childhood. I was raised in southwestern Pennsylvania in a small coal mining town. And in that town, it was probably around 5,000 people. And then when I was in ninth grade, we moved to a place that was only 500 people. But our family has interesting roots there. My mom came through Ellis Island when she was seven, and her parents settled in this even a smaller coal mining town where they had a store, which is very typical of the Lebanese who came over to this country. My grandfather sold dry goods out of a truck and he had the truck outfitted so that you could pull up the sides and there was all the dry goods. And that was a really big deal because up to that point, until the Lebanese folks came and became peddlers, the coal miners had very little opportunity to buy anything outside the company store. Like everything, even their wages were tied to buying at the company store. So in some sense, my grandfather and then subsequently my father, when he came over after he married my mom, were very instrumental in bringing alternatives and kind of breaking the hold that the company store had on those communities at that time. And that, that's true for any of the Lebanese. At that time, you had to be sponsored to come to the United States by people who were already there. So 
a lot of people from our village. It's called Dili Batrun. So it's in, it's above Batrun in the mountains, 5,000 feet above sea level. It's, it's an amazing place. So a lot of people from our village were in the area where we were because that's how we got sponsored to be there. That's how they kind of all ended up. We had maybe one or two other either Syrian or Lebanese families there in that town, but we never really associated. I mean, we associated with our aunt and uncle and their kids, my cousins, 12 miles away, Uniontown, there was a large Lebanese community, you know, given the size of the town. And, but that was a totally different environment to grow up in as being Lebanese. My uncle was the pastor of the Maronite church there where all the Lebanese people went to church. I would go to church and I could see the difference between kids that were raised in a community of Lebanese people, in a community of Arab speaking people, that they had such a deeper connection to just the community feeling of the culture and the broader familiar feeling of the culture where, where we were, we felt very isolated. My sister often talked about, well, she wrote a, actually an editorial piece for the New York Times. And I think it really exemplifies kind of our feeling when we went through the front door, it was like we went into a totally different world. When we went back into our house, that was a whole nother cultural space, a whole nother language, a whole nother way of being norms were very different than when we walked outside. So it was always kind of as a child kind of where do I fit? On which side of the door do I fit? And how much do I belong in either space? So the whole thing was about fitting in. You know, we had to fit in. So you can see my hair is curly and my skin is darker. You know, it's a, it's a beautiful color, but my mother was like, stay out of the sun. Always straightening my hair with curl-free and, you know, playing it down with Vaseline. I think my mother was super surprised that when she had kids here in the United States, that we looked Lebanese. I think for some reason, because she was in the United States, my mother thought that we were all going to come out blonde and blue-eyed. And it was quite a shock. And I don't think she ever really got over it. There was all of that. That's why groups like this that you have, Rishman, and another group I belong to, Arab Girl Magic. And I love this connection because I never had that. I had that with my sisters and my brothers. But we were struggling with the same kind of issues. We were struggling around identity and belonging and acceptance and carrying the same shame. And when I talk to you about your sisters, it sounds like you guys were very, very supportive of each other. And I think our life was so dysfunctional and we were struggling so much to figure out where to belong. And our parents had so much of the shame of being an immigrant and all that stuff that we weren't good friends. <laughs> we weren't supports to each other. We're very, very close now. But when I think about our childhood, we were all just six little kids trying to figure out how the hell to navigate this world yeah. uh, when we weren't getting very many clues from our family, our parents, because they were struggling with exactly the same kinds of things that we were. Yeah. So, um, <clears throat> so that was my early days. I just, as you can imagine, I couldn't wait to leave. So at at 18, I left and I really never went back home except to visit. I just needed to find other people that looked like me to just feel like there was somewhere I could stand in the world that I belonged. And when you, when you decided to leave and I, and I I completely can relate to that, did you have a sense then of like looking for a place where you belonged? Sort of like, there's gotta be somewhere for me and this isn't it. This is insights I have now more than insights that I had then. It was very embedded in me, the need to be accepted by the white culture, that in some way it was a failure to me. So there was always kind of this seeking of 
acceptance in the bigger culture. So it's, yes, it's finding a place to stand, but it's also figuring out how can I get these people to accept me? And I even see that play out in my life now. It's very discouraging. I think that's why I always sought out very diverse communities. You know, most of the men that I dated were men of color. People that I resonated most with were folks that had some kind of story to tell about immigration or oppression or othering. I was in a struggle around identity and belonging for such a long time. And I, and for, in all different kinds of forms, even as I continued to walk in and be more embodied in who I am and more excited about who I am in the world and what I have to bring and my cultural heritage and what shaped me and accepting and embracing that, there was still that kind of struggle. And I think any person of color there's that struggle between where we belong and that need to want to be accepted by the bigger culture and also wanting to stand up and be recognized and acknowledged and supported for being who I am. Well, I'm curious when you, you know, in your 20s and 30s, did you find academically or professionally like a place that you felt kind of at home or belonging in terms of a practice or profession? So I think that this is how I kind of think about how I found my place in the world. Um, it was really hard being the other growing up and feeling what that felt like, right? And um, then I was the oldest daughter of six kids in the family. And so I was like the second mother. So I was always in service to the family. That was my job. I was the second mother. I cooked. I did all that kind of stuff because that's who I was. When my mother went to work at my dad's store, you know, I was the one taking care of the house and feeding and doing all that kind of stuff. That's why you have big families, so they all have to work. So I always was in service. And I think that combination of just, you know, my training to be in service and knowing that I can do that, that that's something that I'm good at, together with this really deep sense of what it feels to be the other or feel oppressed or separate, really drew me to those kinds of kids and working with those kinds of kids and families. So my early years were really working with kids that were, you know, adolescents that had very, very tough backgrounds involved with the law, abuse, you know, kids very much that were suffering from a lot of the things. I was very drawn to those, those kids and those families. I felt like there was something about their life that I could lean into and understand more than I could probably understand if I went to the private school and taught with kids that were going there or even a, not an urban high school. So that's kind of how I think I found my place with my work because I have also a very entrepreneurial streak because of my family, right? So then I started creating and developing programs and organizations and agencies and all that kind of stuff. You know, these are people who are feeling just as marginalized and out of place as me. So maybe we were in the struggle together. You know, yeah, I was going to yeah. say, maybe it was yeah. sort of a place in which the belonging isn't shared actually by anyone, but because that's the case, right? shared, you know, togetherness in that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. When, um, where are you at now in your life in terms of that through line? You know, uh -huh. I'm just curious yeah. how you see... Yeah both being a person of service and also I know that you've, you know, I've talked about what it is that you need for the, for the self and like mm -hmm. the healing. So, yeah, I'm just curious about where you see that both in terms of work as well as like how that manifests in your life now. Uh-huh. Well, I, you know, I just turned 70, so I have to look back on those years and, you know, people say, oh, I, when I say I'm 70, they say, oh, you look so good. And I'm like, I know I look good. That's not the issue. Mm -hmm. 
it's just the amount of years. So it's interesting to look back on a career of service that literally spans 50 years. I probably started working in these kind of programs when I was 20 years old. I feel really excited about what I've been able to accomplish over the years because I've done a lot of different things, which has led me to where I am now. And I'm at this point where I'm probably at the top of my game in terms of facilitation and work like that, but I don't want to be necessarily in a position of responsibility. I want to be more in a position of support, mentorship, and being able to choose things that I want to contribute to and bring my skills to. So I'm doing more of, of that kind of work. I'm, I have a couple of big contracts that are going to end in the fall. And also you were involved in a series of workshops we did to support Evolving and Emerging Women Leaders, which was really exciting. And that's more of a culmination, I think, of not only my work path, but my own spiritual path, as well as my own sense of enlightenment and understanding about my own self. It's what helped me move from that scared little out-of-touch girl to the person I am now, because I wouldn't have been able at all to do anything that I've done now with that really, really deep work on myself, really deep internal work, mm -hmm. you know, spiritual work and, and, you know, my other kind yeah. of work. Maybe let's talk a little bit about that, if you don't mind, you know, if you're sort of moving from the sort of scared girl to a more, you know, confident leader present in your life. I think you've talked to me earlier about just really feeling life is a creative act, you know, and being being able to be as creative as possible. So what are some of the strategies that have helped you and how are you maybe working on illuminating those strategies as you work with other people? Well, this might sound like far-fetched a little bit, but really dancing is a huge strategy for me. Love that. Dancing, <laughs> oh God, dancing <laughs> is somewhere that I can be fully inside my own spirit, my own self. And I do different kinds of dancing, social dancing. I do the Argentine tango with my husband, but it's really human salsa. I used to say to folks, well, I had to leave pieces of myself in the refrigerator when I went out to the world, you know? So a lot of my life was about leaving part of myself behind to be able to fit in to the larger world. Or to, that's what I felt. Maybe that wasn't true, but certainly that's how I felt. <laughs> And I think dancing was a place that I could fully be my, and it's also in particular because the Cuban culture, there's energy, there's sensuality of the body, there's expression, there's musicality, there's all of that embodiment. So I can feel very free in that environment to be who I am. So that was, that was really important to me to feel that kind of freedom of an integrated self, not just freedom of the mind or freedom of the body, but it was like freedom of my whole self. I could be there and dance and express myself in that way. That feels so great. So that is about finding your passion for self-expression. So you asked about tools. I think one of the important tools is a tool to find a place where you can feel totally passionate and you can feel whole and be able to express yourself. And it was dance for me. It could be cooking for somebody else or whatever. But I feel like that ability to kind of find places where you can be more of your integrated self where you, you bring your whole self to and feel your whole self expressing is really, really helpful. And, um, you know, it's just taking care of the heart and finding people that really love me, you know, and letting go of people who it's hard. If it's hard, let them go. Let go of these people who I'm finding myself needing to conform to or not say things or be careful about how I feel or what I'm saying. I wanted to ask about the sort of ancestral wisdom 
because I feel like there's a, a lot of people sort of tapping into that from a number of different places. I know I'm trying to in my own way and in the work and realizing, but it also makes me realize how much more I want to do for myself as well. So I'm wondering what ancestral wisdom means to you and if and when you experience it or how it comes through in your work. Yeah. It's funny, I was walking along the trail here and there's all these beautiful plants. And all of a sudden in this, on this tiny little hill, I see these bachelor buttons. And they were totally out of context. They had nothing to do with any other plant in this, you know, half a mile or a mile that I walk every day. And here, here are these bachelor buttons. And the bachelor buttons were my mother's, one of my mother's favorite flowers. And they grew in her yard. And I'm like, mom's here. You know, and it's just like, and so every day I go to see if my mom's there and I look at the flowers and I say to her, talk to her and, and thank her for certain things. And, you know, it's uh, so, I mean, that's not speaking directly to ancestral wisdom, but it's, it's kind of like when you open up to ancestral wisdom, it's, it comes to you in a zillion different ways to inform you. So I think sometimes, you know, people are saying they're calling in their ancestors and all that. And that's a really good practice. We really need to think about that. But we can do it every single day. We can start, you know, touching and, and, and leaning into that ancestral wisdom by just paying attention to what's around us and seeing what's showing up for us. I mean, the women in my family are enormously incredible, powerful, powerful women. Of course, they didn't know it because they were just fulfilling their role as women. Like when these guys were off in Brazil, doing rubber trading and doing that stuff. It was the Spanish flu and all this stuff. Who was taking care of the nine kids? Who was taking care of them? It was the mother. I come from a lineage of women who are enormously strong survivors and uh, strong-willed and real powerful, powerful women, my mother included. She could never embrace that. That's the sad part of that. My mother was a good businesswoman. She led all these clubs in the town. She was just like an enormously successful person. So probably smarter than my dad. It's my sisters and I talk about that. But she was not valued for that. But I value her. And I value my grandmothers and my ancestral lineage for what they've given me. Just the fact that my family could just leave and go to Brazil and come back. It's just amazing. And in one of my spiritual books, I just read this, this thing that everything in life is connected you know, it's all connected. I would not be here if it wasn't for all the things that happened millennium ago. I mean, we all are a result of what has come before us in the fashion that it came before us. Because if it came in any other different way, we would not be here. And, and it's, just, it's just really... So when I think about ancestral wisdom, I think about of my family, but I think of the broader ownership of, of us connecting to every living thing here. We're all connected because none of us would be here if things were different. So that's what I think about in terms of ancestral wisdom. Well, that's a long answer. Sorry. No, no, no. It's, it's perfect. I'm, I'm, I'm still sort of sitting by the bush with your mom <laughs> saying all this, you know? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I go visit her every day. It's so weird. I've looked all over. There's no other, there's that only one spot. It's right on the top of the hill. She can see the water. It's just really interesting. That's <laughs> so beautiful. Yeah.
I just, I just want to express how much value. I mean, I feel so lucky to be at this place in my life and have met you and been part of the Kel Shakes and now the Shaharazad squad and then this other group. I mean, I have not spent time with Mensa women or Lebanese women. I've just never been involved in those communities for a myriad of reasons. So it's really, really wonderful for me. It's such a gift at this point in my life because that's the part I needed to bring into resolution more. I needed to bring more of my full Arab self because there are things that I can talk to you all about and the Arab sisters that I'm, I'm meeting with. We have a conversation that starts at a totally different place. There's a level of understanding and appreciation that really is, is just beautiful. And I think that would be my other tool. And that's about affinity group. Find your affinity group and spend time there because that's very nourishing and very acknowledging. I want to thank you for your work. Thank you for sitting with me today. Have a blessed day. Bye, dear. Bye. Thank you for listening. That was organizational consultant Selma Abinader. To learn more about her work, visit the website abinadergroup.com, A-B-I-N-A-D-E-R group.com. Well, it feels like it's really coming together in some new form that feels that it takes the best from the past and kind of evolves it forward. So it feels really nice what's happening. If you're interested in joining the squad, and if you identify as a Swanasa woman, non-binary, creative, cultural producer, or change agent, you can find information on our website, shahrazadsquad.org. Did I mention we have some wonderful conversation cards available for purchase? These artist design cards feature fun and meaningful prompts that connect small groups of people. They're a great way to learn more about the people in your life and share stories. Each deck is $25 and fully goes to support squad activities and continue our project. You can find the link in the notes or again on our website. I produced the episode and it was edited and mixed by the wonderful Sonia Mermont. That was beautiful and I was actually like crying. Music is by squad member Naima Shalhoub. We thank our supporters, our funders, and you, our listeners. Thanks for your support, and thanks again for listening. Stay tuned for our next episode.